come to Discipleship Ending in Glory, and thank you for persevering in their studies in Bonhoeffer's outlook on particularly the Sermon on the Mount, but his outlook on discipleship. And we've been seeing what God has been teaching about discipleship, and it is particularly challenging. And I think it is always good, and I can encourage you to do that too, not just read what is today the, the most popular Christian writers. It's good to read writers from other times and periods because it's particularly our own period. We're not in a, a period of particular depth in spirituality. And we read from other times, sometimes we can learn uh, something even more. Now, as we think of this theme tonight of discipleship ending in glory, and I have in mind there, speaking there, are being transformed into the same image, the image of the Lord, from one degree of glory to another. And how the whole purpose of discipleship is to end in us being changed into the glory of Christ. Now, as we look at it, the first thing I want us to see is the, the visible community here. And we were thinking this morning about how the church is the body of Christ. And as Jesus' body was visible when He was on earth and walking among the people in Israel, so the church needs to be visible today. It needs to be that visible body that the world can see. And the world, uh, sorry, the church is made visible through the preaching of the Word and the sacraments. That's the main way that the church is the church, through the preaching of the Word and the sacraments and the impact that they have on people's lives. Bonhoeffer says, the uncorrupted ministry of the Word and sacraments is of paramount importance. And referring to the life of the early church, as was described in, do you remember Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostle doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread. Bonhoeffer says this, it is instructive to note that the fellowship is mentioned between the Word, the apostle's doctrine, and the sacrament, the breaking of bread. This is no accident. For fellowship always springs from the Word and finds its goal and completion in the Lord's Supper. The whole common life of the Christian fellowship oscillates between Word and sacrament. It begins and ends in worship. And that is how our fellowship grows. That's how we grow closer together. It is meeting together, but more than that, particularly meeting together in the Word and in the sacraments. Because when we meet in the Word and in the sacraments, we're meeting with Jesus. We're meeting in Jesus. Now, Bonhoeffer says, the common life bears living testimony to the concrete humanity of the Son of God. The life that is then that comes in the church from meeting together in the Word and the sacraments, that common life, that oneness that we have together, he says, is the testimony to the concrete humanity of the Son of God. In other words, how should the world today know that Jesus has lived on this earth 2,000 years ago? How should the world today know that God was made flesh? It should be as it looks at the fellowship, at the common life, 
at the oneness, at the love, at the unity that is to be found amongst people. As the world today looks at the church and sees the body of Christ as it should be, it's saying the world will know that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is real. Bonhoeffer says, the visible church with its perfect common life invades the world and robs it of its children. And basically, the picture there is the, the church reaching out, the church on, on the attack, reaching into a world, a godless world that is opposed indeed to Christ. We rob it of His children. We bring its children, the children of the world. We bring the children of the world into the church through this common life, this oneness, this fellowship, this unity. He uses as an example of this common life the story of Onesimus. Remember the slave who ran away from his slave owner Philemon? And Paul wrote that little letter to Philemon about this whole incident. And of the relationship between Onesimus, the slave who had stolen and run away, and Philemon, his master, who then both became Christians, he says this, the whole relationship between master and slave has been radically changed. And how had this come to pass? Master and slave are now both members of the body of Christ. And so, people's relationships, how they interact with each other, how they treat each other, how they think of each other, that will change through being part of the church, the body. And he goes on and says, this is how the church invades the life of the world and conquers territory for Christ. I was listening to Alistair Begg this week, and as I do, I listen to him regularly, and he was talking about his church, and uh, he was complaining about his church, how there seemed to be so many who are just content in coming, 1,500 people to that church, just content in coming and in, sitting in their pews and going out again, and not really engaging and being active in the work of discipleship and evangelism. But as he spoke about the life of the church, he says, our priority is to worry about the depth, and then the breadth will take care of itself. When we go deep together with Jesus, the breath, the reaching out, will take care of itself if we really are going on with Christ. Bonhoeffer says this about the Christian, let him remain in the world to engage in frontal assault on it, and let him live the life of his secular calling, his everyday job, in order to show himself as a stranger in this world all the more. But that is only possible if we are visible members of the church. He describes the church like a sanctuary, like a, the tabernacle, like a place of worship that the Lord has brought together, the Lord has made holy in order for the den to go out and to evangelize and to reach the needy world around us. And he says, he's basically saying, you know, it's impossible for people to be effective witnesses in the world if they're not really engaged 
in the life of their church. He goes on and says this, in the world, the Christians are a colony of the true home. They are strangers and aliens in a foreign land, enjoying the hospitality of that land, obeying its laws and honoring its government, but they are only passing through the country. At any moment, they may receive the signal to move on. And you see, this is really when the church is effective. This is when the church is most effective. It's when we have a sense that we don't belong here. We have a sense that this world is not our home. We are people waiting for another home. It's when we have that eternal perspective, that heavenly mindedness. It's then we really are of earthly use. The more we truly are focused on Christ, the more we will impact the world around us. So we're to be this visible community, this community that is drawn together through the Word and sacrament, drawn closer to Christ, who have a love, a common cause together that will cause the world to see that Christ is alive and He's real. And then it moves on to the next point, which is the, the saints. And he says this about the church. It is the holy church, the community of the saints, and its members are called to be saints, sanctified in Jesus Christ, chosen and set apart before the foundation of the world. Now, I want you to notice that the same word basically is repeated, the word holy. It's the holy church, the community of saints. The word saint just basically means holy ones, the same root as holy. Its members are called to be holy ones, sanctified, in other words, made holy in Jesus Christ, chosen and set apart, which means to be holy before the foundation of the world. And so he's saying is that if we are going to be though the church that has an impact in the world around us, what are we to be? Holy, set apart, different. Now, we tend to use that word, or society tends to use the word saint today for, for St. Patrick or St. Andrew or people who are re renowned believers for certain things they've done. That is not the way the New Testament uses the word saint. In fact, the New Testament never uses the word saint. It always uses the word saints, plural. In other words, we the ordinary believers are the holy ones together. We be holy together. He goes on and says this, the fruit of their liberation from sin through the death of Christ, is that whereas they once surrendered their members, their members' servants to iniquity, they may now use them in the service of righteousness unto sanctification. And so, where we once gave ourselves over to sin, give our bodies and our lives to sin, a saint is someone who now gives themselves for the purpose of righteousness, doing what is right by God, and sanctification, that which is holy in God's sight. 
And this is what a Christian is. Saints are not some sort of higher degree for Christians who want to take it a wee bit more seriously. The Bible doesn't know such a division. Either you're a, one of the saints of God or you're an unbeliever. And so saints are those who together labor for that which is righteous and holy. He goes on and thinking of those two great words which we learned in our catechism, justification and sanctification. He says, justification makes the individual a member of the church, whereas sanctification preserves the church with all its members. Justification enables the believer to break away from his sinful past. Sanctification enables him to abide in Christ, to persevere in faith, and to grow in love. You see, justification is how we're made right with God through faith. And the problem is that so many Christians are just interested in that, being right with God through faith, so they'll go to heaven one day and not go to hell. Now, of course, justification is crucial. It's important. It's where we begin. But emphasis, it's where we begin, not where we end. And we, when we're justified, we have to begin the process of being sanctified, which just means to be made holy, to become like Jesus. And he says, it's this work of being sanctified that preserves the church. If the church fails to be holy, it will be cast away by the Lord. It's His holiness that the Lord delights in. He goes on and says this about sanctification. He says, the sanctification of the church means its separation from all that is unholy, from sin, and the method by which it is accomplished is by God sealing the church and thus making it His own possession. And you'll understand that sealing means His Holy Spirit coming to live within the life of the believer. Who comes to live within the life of the believer? The Holy Spirit. So you, you cannot be a saint. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a part of the church and think you can just live your own life of sin. He says there, it's separation from all that is unholy, from all sin. We look at Jesus dying on the cross to save us from sin. We can't value what Jesus has done and still hold on to our sin. We need constantly to ask ourselves, are we compromising? Are we compromising what we allow to entertain us? Are we compromising in what we watch, listen to, the conversations we have? Do we compromise in our attitudes to others, in our priorities in life? Bonhoeffer says the source of both individual and corporate sanctification is the same, namely fellowship and communion with Christ in the same body. It's meeting with Jesus, meeting with Jesus in the church and among the people of God that makes us holy. And he goes on, and this is very realistic. He says, the community of the saints is not an ideal community consisting of perfect and sinless men and women. Praise God, gives us a bit of hope. 
where there is no need of further repentance. It is a community of men and women who have genuinely encountered the precious grace of God and who walk worthily of the gospel by not casting that grace recklessly away. So the church, it isn't made up of perfect people. Being one of the saints doesn't mean we have to be perfect. We strive for it, but we'll not reach it. We'll fail. We'll mess up. But what's the mark of the true believer, the true member of the church? They have been gripped by grace. Sinclair Ferguson says that grace has met us in our hopelessness and helplessness. But grace will not leave us in our hopelessness and helplessness. Grace wants to move us on. Grace wants us. It's like I remember when I was a child, probably around the time when I smashed up my Tonka toys around that era. I remember I was out with my dad one day, and he was cutting some hedges around our land, and I was playing, and I fell into a shuck. We do have shucks in County Armagh as well, and uh, it was a fairly deep shuck. And you can imagine a young fella, I remember trotting up the road, absolutely plastered, guttered, and uh, smelling and wet and miserable. And a sense, I can't remember if mum was home that day, maybe it was a good job, maybe she wasn't, uh, but it's imagine like we arrive at the door of the church, like that little child who's fallen into the shock of all the filth, of all the mud, of all the smell. And what does the Lord say? Welcome. Now let's begin to make you clean. And it's not instant, it's not overnight. And there'll be parts of that mud and muck will still be there for a while. But the Lord will continue to work in us to change us. Bonhoeffer says this, sanctification means driving out the world from the church, as well as separating the church from the world. Discipline in a congregation is a servant of the precious grace of God. If a member of the church falls into sin, he must be admonished and punished, lest he forfeit his own salvation and the gospel be discredited. I think when it comes to discipline, there are times when the church does have to take strong action. But there are other times when we constantly have to take action with each other, not going around always finding fault in each other. We're, we're not to have a fellowship like that. We're not to have people coming to the door who've come out of the shock and us pointing out every fault that they have. But in our conversations, as we discuss things graciously, we should never be afraid of putting down what is the biblical position on something. Because what happens in our discussions, even discussions in the church, just a common worldly wisdom can dominate rather than the Word of God. And what has happened? The world is in the church. 
but in our conversations, in our discussions, in our debates, as we bring the Word into our thinking, it drives the wisdom and the ways of the world out. And that has to happen in our own discussion. When you read your Bible, take time to read your Bible and let that Word change you. I remember William still talking about his eggledy-piggledy theology, which is not a very uh, theological term, but how he constantly is letting the Word change how he thinks. We have to let the Word transform us, the saints. And then finally, we have the image of Christ, which leads us to glory. Bonhoeffer says this, God created Adam in his own image as the climax of his creation. He wanted to have the joy of beholding in Adam the reflection of himself. And behold, it was very good. God saw himself in Adam. Created man is destined to bear the image of uncreated God. And that is the purpose for which God made this world, to have creatures, human beings, who will bear His image, who will be a reflection of what God was like in righteousness and purity. But you know the story, Genesis 3, due to Adam's sin, the glory of being made in God's image was spoiled, it was corrupted, and was nearly totally lost. And this is what Bonhoeffer says, as man can no longer be like the image of God, God must become like the image of man. The Son of God, who dwelt in the form of God the Father, lay aside that form and comes to man in the form of a slave. Philippians 2. He did not consider equality of God something to be grasped, something to be held under. So he came and made himself a servant. So when we have failed to continue to be the image of God, God comes down to be the image of man. He goes on and says this about Jesus. It's not the same image as Adam bore in the primal glory of paradise. So Jesus didn't come on and take on the perfect body that Adam had in Eden. No. Rather, it is the image of one who enters a world of sin and flesh, who takes upon himself all the sorrows of humanity. Jesus took on the body of a fallen, sinful human race. He didn't take on the body of Eden, which was perfect and wouldn't know sickness and all the pains of that. He took on a body that had been impacted by the fall, and yet he was without sin. But this is what happened to that body of Christ, where he took on human flesh. That body in which Christ had lived in the form of a servant, rose on Easter day as a new body with heavenly form and radiance. But if we would have a share in that glory and radiance, 
we must first be conformed to the image of the suffering servant who was obedient to the death of the cross. If we would bear the image of his glory, we must first bear the image of his shame. Now, what he's saying there is, we messed up. Human beings, we messed it up. So Jesus comes and takes on one of these messed up human natures, human bodies. And he takes that human body and he crucifies it. He has it nailed to the cross. He kills it. And then he rises from it on the third day. It has become a resurrected, glorious body. And then 40 days later, it enters fully into glory and the glorification is completed. So he takes the fallen human being, kills that fallen nature, resurrects it into something new, glorifies it in heaven. And what Bonhoeffer is saying is, if we're going to share in that, if we are going to see these rotten bodies of ours, the rotten natures of ours, if we are going to see them glorified in heaven one day, they, we have to die. We have to have the death of Jesus on the cross applied to us. We have to die in Jesus. But if we die in Jesus, if we take up the cross, if we trust in Christ, if we die to sin and to self, we will rise. And we will rise one day all the way to glory. And our discipleship will be glorified. It will end in that world to come with a joy, a wonder, a peace, praise, and adoration of the Lord beyond anything we can imagine. Bonhoeffer says, if we are conformed to his image in his incarnation and crucifixion, we shall also share the glory of his resurrection. And he ends just by quoting from 2 Corinthians 3. But we all with unveiled face, reflecting as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. What is the glory of Christ like? Think of the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were up that mountain, and Jesus was transformed into this glorious brightness, brighter than the noonday sun. And Peter became a, a babbling rack. He didn't know what he was saying. Shall we set up some tents, Lord, for you and Elijah and Moses who were there? Think of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appeared to him in his glorified state. Brighter than the noonday sun, Saul falls down and is blinded before him. Think of Revelation 1. John, Christ appears to him again. Christ appears in his glorified state. John falls like a dead man. Christian, you are going to share in that glory. 
if you die with Christ, you will rise and be glorified with him forever. We haven't a clue what we will be, but it'll be greater than we can ever imagine. And when we grasp this, John in his letter says, when we see him, we shall be like him. And those who have this hope, they purify themselves. Realize, when people out there think you're weird, you are weird if you're a Christian. You don't belong to this world. You've come from this world, but this world is not your home. You're a child destined for glory. And may we live in the light of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your servant, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Thank you, Father, for the insights that he gives in his writings. Thank you for your grace in his life. And thank you, Father, that now 70, what is it, 70, over 70 years after his death, Father, we are still considering his words. But really, it's your word. It's your unchanging gospel. It's your unchanging call to discipleship that we've been thinking about. And so, Father, we pray that as we have considered it, Lord, that we would live as children, not of sin, but as children of glory, as children of righteousness. Father, when people in our house annoy us and frustrate us, may we behave as children of glory. When the world out there, Father, is unkind to us, Give us the grace to live as children of glory. And Father, as we go and do our everyday work this week, may people see a difference in us. Because, Father, we are those who spend time with the Christ of glory. And as we sit in his presence, Father, we're becoming more like him. Oh, Father, grant that for us as individuals. Grant it for us as a church. In Jesus' name we pray.